You know, science is like a circle, and like our knowledge is the interior of that circle, and our ignorance is the diameter. And the bigger our knowledge gets, the more we don't know. This is Glenn Murphy with NC Systema, and this is Systema for Life. Howie, how are you, man? Welcome back. Good. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to see you. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been a bit. I don't. I don't three week to four week layoff from the podcast. So I had a, um, a bit of a gap there as I was traversing across the United States with my family, road tripping all the way to Texas and back and experiencing all of the major animal phyla. I think like a bat dropped on my wife. We had a cotton mouth swimming next to us in the, in the river. It's uh, we've, uh, innumerable, innumerable invertebrates and biting things. So it's a, it was quite a camping experience and, the, and the, but had some nice human contact as well. So that was good post COVID. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, the pictures all look very peaceful. It didn't, they didn't. They didn't indicate the uh, yeah, yeah. America part. <laughs> the animal attacks were between the frames. <laughs> there was one actually that we shared. Of me, um, I'm like waist deep in this river, and my kids are on a big inflatable thing. We just kind of floated down the river that we were camping next to. And right at the moment you shot it, you can see that I'm like frowning and and staring at something just off shot. And that was um, a snake swimming past us in the water with a alarmingly flat head with a beveled bit, which is normally way way my kind of rule of thumb for discerning venomous from non venomous. If they're like smooth, like and if, then like that, like a worm, then usually they're fine. But if they have if the back of the head flares out a little bit, then you're like, eh, it's probably venomous. So I'm pretty sure I think it was a cotton mouth. So, um, yeah, so I was like, kids, stay on the inflatable. <laughs> Let's wait for this guy to swim away. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. So uh, so I thought we'd uh, a bit of a chat today about, um, partly because it's been a while since we caught up on things, um, and also because we've had a bit of a back and forth over text um, on a couple of different things, really, uh, on some ideas relating to nutrition um, and some ideas relating to exercise. And then it just kind of occurred to me that this is kind of dovetailing with other conversations I'm having with my um, some of my systemic students on kind of discerning truth from reality insofar as we can do that and um, discerning when we might be getting led astray by a really appealing idea you know an idea that's really exciting and it has a great story behind it and that compelling story and maybe the you know the personality and the charisma of the person that's telling the story can be enough sometimes for us to be like good enough for me i'm pretty sure that's true right um and then later on when something else comes along to contradict it we're thrown into this kind of like oh man i really wanted to believe that and now something else is happening um i'm pretty sure both of these are true in some way but how do i kind of reconcile that in my head so i mean this is kind of something that i've been wrestling with most of my like academic life as well as uh, moving you know from trained science into into additional ways of thinking let's put it that way as well um mm. and uh, and one that's never fully resolved but i thought we might have have a crack at some of the, the the concrete examples of of how we sort this out how you do it how i do it um and this might be of benefit then to people listening whether they're trying to improve their health they're trying to improve diet exercise nutrition or whether they're just trying to stay on a good path for training and keep keep making good progress and skill acquisition and stuff sounds great um i'm in cool right so um so the, the problem that we're faced with right now, right, and this has always been a problem, is how do we discern what is true from what is false? Um, and it kind of occurs to me that uh, in terms of purveyors of falsehoods, right, there's kind of two categories. There's like your straight charlatans and liars, like people who know that they're peddling bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. um, they, they know what they've got is false, and they're just trying to – they have another motive. They have some other kind of um, intrinsic motivation for getting you to buy the thing or believe them or whatever it's going to be. And this can go – this can be anything from, you know, 
yoga gurus who want to build up a, like a harem of, of women to have sex with, right? <laughs> Where it's going to be um, all the way through to kind of diet gurus who kind of know that their stuff isn't really right and it's not really backed up, but they sell a lot of books and they, you know, they, they sell a lot of products and ideas or like, you know, little powdered things that you pour into drinks and people lose weight. I don't know, like all that kind of stuff, right? This kind of snake oil salesman. So that's one category, but the other category of people are, um, a range of people who believe what they believe and that they absolutely believe it to be true. And they're spreading those ideas with a view to helping people. Um, and this can range from the, the fanatical, you know, the people who are absolutely fanatical but that their ideas are right and need to be spread, whether it's Jesus or paleo or veganism or CrossFit or whatever it is, right? People need to do this. They need to understand it. Otherwise, you know, they'll be worse off. So it, in, in a way that comes from a good place, right? Um, and all the way down to people who are not quite as fanatical, but they, they, they believe quite strongly in their idea and and they're convincing enough that you get pulled along with them have you got any additional thoughts on that well very often the second group are consumers of the first group hmm. right like i've put myself in that second group where so if i surround myself by enough people who share enough studies about veganism about this being the one right way to eat yeah Right. I, you know, I've just like, well, look at the science. I mean, like I've written, you know, a bunch of books just collating the science and I'm like, yeah, this is overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and, okay. and, you know, what, so the question is what, you know, what may be missing hmm. in terms of, well, am I getting a balanced diet of information and, hmm. you know, am I cherry picking? Yeah, so so therein lies the problem in the modern age, right? This has always been a problem. There's always been conflicting ideas and people that will tell you different points of view on a given thing, whether it's health or you know whether it's medicine. You'll have conflicting doctors in ancient Greece or ancient China, and two one of them, one of them will say, you know, that's leeches. Definitely leeches are the way forward. And somebody else will be like, just make him very cold for a long time, right? And they'll argue about it, and you don't know who to believe because they both seem authoritative. Um, and, but now it seems like there's so many opinions and it's such a kind of dizzyingly information rich world that it can be hard to sift through all the wheat, um, you know, to sift the wheat from the chaff. Like there's so much chaff. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, it's crazy. So it's, it's hard to even get started on that project sometimes. So I think we're using different rules of thumb. We're just kind of, we're, we're relying a lot more, um, on kind of crowdsourcing our knowledge to an extent, right? Crowdsourcing, if it's highly prevalent on Facebook or Instagram, or it seems like somebody, um, you know, it's very, very popular with a good number of people who I kind of already trust, then good enough for me, right? And, and I'll run with that. I could go and read all the studies and I could go and look at alternative points of view and I could read all the meta-analyses and all the, the counter-arguments and things like that. But who has time for that shit, right? There's there's literally, even though we have access to all that stuff, we don't have to go to the library and learn the Dewey Decimal System anymore to pull these things out. Like we could do it in a lot less time, but there's still, there's exponentially more information available on almost any subject. You know, it's hard to find a niche subject in which there aren't at least 12 opinions now, you know? Um, so so what additional problems does that pose? I mean, for you, let's let's get with a concrete example, right? You're fairly, or have been fairly convinced for a, for a long time that, if not veganism, then whole food, plant-based eating um, is the most healthy diet that you can have, right? For a long period of time, um, that's been your um, that's been your bedrock, right? And, and that's a large part of your podcast. It's a large part of your health coaching practices, things like that as well. Deep down, how do you decide that that is true enough 
that, that, that you feel confident in being an authority and coaching other people in that. Right. So a few, I th- a few things. Yeah. Um, one is I think it's very useful for me to publicly announce that I really don't know. Mm. Right. So there's always like, even when you, you know, if you do a, uh, the world's best random control trial with huge yeah. numbers, mm-hmm. you're still reporting confidence intervals. Right. Mm. So there's always an unknowability. And so, so I think there's, you know, the, one of the things that I love about science, about pure scientific method is that there's humility baked into it. Mm-hmm. In theory. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. That's why I said pure. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. Science versus scientists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So to say like, I really believe this, but I could be wrong. Mm. Right. Like when, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's people who will, who will say, you know, the earth is flat and vaccines don't work and all this stuff. And they'll point to Galileo. Yeah. Right. Or Copernicus and say, see, people have believed bullshit for millennia. And and so people are believing bullshit now. Yeah. And I think that's the wrong way to use that fact. But I think the right way to use it is to say, we really do need to be humble Mm. about what we know and what we don't know, which means like, what does that mean? Um, you know, in terms of practice, it means it's very important to not live in your echo chamber. Yeah. It means you want to look for people who have different points of view mm-hmm. and learn from them if mm. you can. So very often I'll see an article and it'll say something that's the opposite of what I believe to be true. Mm. And I'll follow it. Now, most of the time it's, you know, Facebook algorithm, clickbait bullshit. Yeah. So like bacon is the fountain of youth and, and, the, and the article is about. Don't tell me it's not. He's just shattering my reality. Yeah, yeah I, should, I should, I should, I should, you know, ease into this. Yeah. I don't want to hear this truth. <laughs> well, the, the, the article, uh, the study um, that I eventually found was that um, this type of uh, a flatworm that's given supplemental niacin lives an average 11 days versus 10 days. And there's niacin in bacon. Oh, wow. That's quite a stretch. That's, that's, so, that's a, that's a, yeah. so it's, you know, that's, it wasn't too much of a stretch for baconbabe.com. <laughs> but bacon babe then gets picked up by, you know, some bigger blog, which then gets picked up eventually, you know, and eventually it ends up in like a column on menshealth.com. Mm. Right. So yeah. you want, you know, it's like, but, but I didn't look at it just to debunk it and make fun of it, but to say, like, what, what do other people know? Like, mm. there's enough people out there who are doing keto and paleo and Mediterranean um, and variations on those that mm. look pretty good to me. They yeah. look pretty healthy and they publish their blood work. And I'm yeah. like, well, maybe there's other ways to, yeah. to be healthy. Now, maybe long term, those are bad. Right. There's a bunch of studies that seem to show that keto decreases lifespan. Uh, But like, I don't like I believe that whole food plant based is a is an optimal uh, dietary pattern. I don't know if it's the hmm. optimal dietary pattern or the only one or or the one for everyone. I honestly don't know. So, yeah, so that so there's a couple of things in there that we'll come back to. First of all, that that requirement for humility. Right. So let's say you're looking at something. Um, and you don't want to just kind of read it 
with the filter that you already know the truth in this. And so either this reinforces your existing truth and it says, here's another five reasons and another study why veganism rules and paleo sucks, right? And you read that article and you're like, yeah, I feel very affirmed and validated and one better at one notch up today as an expert because I'm telling people this and there it is some more evidence that this is true, right? And I might do the same thing with studies on breathing, right? Uh, a new study comes out that says, wow, the only real way to control yourself under stress. And there was, I think there was one on the Huberman Lab um, podcast like a, a couple of months ago on this. And there was something else that was shared by um, some study at Stanford saying that, yeah, the only real way to get control of your stress response system like in the moment is controlled breathing. And then they went into one kind of tested method of controlled paced breathing that they did in the study and sort of said, this is, if not the, then a very, very strong method. And this absolutely works. And I'm like, we, and I share this on my pages and all that kind of stuff. And I feel quite proud of myself because I talk so much about breathing and, and it's validated by you know, quote, established science um, for once. And you do the same thing. But it, it it takes a lot of humility to go from that to seeing something that says breathing doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, you can you can de-stress yourself with imagery or you can de-stress yourself by organizing your house properly, Marie Kondo style or something, right? Um, or for in your case, seeing something that really does seem to maybe not bacon babe, but something a little bit more convincing. You know, seeing those kind of keto figures. And, th and the problem with that is, again, right, uh, you can draw up innumerable studies on whole food plant-based eating and even veganism, right? Well, let's, let's just stick with whole food plant-based like as a whole. You can draw up tons and tons and tons of studies um, that show that you can recover from long-term illness. Sometimes when you go to whole food plant-based, um, you can you know reverse uh, the onset of diabetes. There's all kinds of things that you can do. But there are also studies that show that switching to kind of like a a paleo diet or a keto diet can do the same thing, right? And and the assertion that kind of we don't know the long-term harm, maybe, you know, if you're we do kind of know the long-term effects of being whole food plant-based in a sense, because we have societies and cultures that have done that for long periods and have been studied for long periods. And we've seen some of the transitions, like in the China study, something like that, right? So with fairly good confidence, you can say we've seen when this works in the wild, right? Not just in, vi in vitro or with a worm or something, right? We've seen whole populations of people try this. And then for some reason or another, they get shifted, like in the China study. And we've seen some of those effects. And so this is a fairly solid, educated guess that here's how healthy they were before. Here's the new problems causative link and we're fairly sure that there's long-term effects going on but I, I think it's very hard to do the same thing for something like paleo or keto because there just aren't long-term really long-term studies of following somebody who's done a keto diet for like 30 or 40 years and then a control population has eaten any other way in the same circumstance you know what i mean so it's some of these things are too new and so asserting that the long-term thing gives you damage is still extrapolating from from small evidence in this so making the same kind of mistake that bacon bait does in a way but just like in a, in a more subtle way so it's not just the weight of evidence right it's, it's not sufficient just to say there's lots of articles on this there's lots of articles on this. Um, it's who's writing those, like it's how it's written. It's, it's the assumptions that are made in the experiment design. Even if your sole um, kind of measure for discerning the truth or untruth of anything is how close to the pure scientific method was this, it's still difficult, right? It's still very, very difficult. You can't rely on that as your one beacon. People say that you can, um, but you really can't because of the the human aspect and because of the social aspect, because of the financial aspect of how, you know, citations and papers are written and how people build scientific careers, right? Um, and scientists themselves can be fanatical about what they're working on. And they, they present ideas above and beyond sometimes um, the usefulness 
of of what they've actually found. Not not everybody, and some are great, but again, now you have to discern between who are the good ones and who aren't. So even within like, okay, everybody, these people are using what I think is the scientific method, you're still making a value judgment on who you trust, aren't you? At some point, it just comes down to, did somebody I trust say so? And that really is the metric that we usually use. As mentioned in today's episode, uh, world-renowned martial arts phenomenon Martin Wheeler will be returning to North Carolina this October 21st to the 24th for our annual four-day event, the East Coast Masterclass NC. So if you haven't trained with him before, please do come and find out why top-level martial arts masters like Danny Santo and Higa Machado urge their students to train with Martin, um, and why Black Belt Magazine have labelled him the best-kept secret in the English-speaking martial arts world. This is going to be a deep multi-day exploration of fighting tactics, fusing the principles of Sistema with decades of hard-earned experience in boxing and grappling and street fighting for Martin. And this year's theme is going to be skill, strategy, and intuition. We're going to work through a layered progression across all four days. Day one, Thursday, we'll be looking at grappling concepts. Day two, striking concepts. Day three, Friday, mixed martial strategies. And then day four, we'll be using Sistema as the operating system to kind of push all of the techniques and tactics from previous days into kind of instinct, implicit guidance, and control. The numbers are limited, and it's already about two-thirds full. I think we've got about 10 spots left on it. Um, so if you do want to register, please do go to ncsystema.com event. That's ncsystema.com event to sign up today. Um, it's currently at 800 bucks for the four days, but if you're listening to this podcast, um, then you can put in the checkout code SFL, as in Systema for Life, at the checkout, and you will get 20% off, bringing it down to $650. So enter the code SFL at checkout, and you will be able to register for all four days for $650. If you're not able to make all four days, there's a weekend price of $350, and you can email me at the usual address to try and get details for that. Hope you can join us. It's going to be a great event. It's going to be all outdoors at Falls Lake. Um, no COVID restrictions this year because we're all vaccinated and sorted. So please do come join us um, from October 21st to the 24th for the East Coast Masterclass with Martin Wheeler. Thank you. Yeah, and I think it's 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 very hard to as you know for scientists for good ethical caring scientists who are searching for the truth mm. to not fall into the trap of over you know what's it over you know extending over their skis or yeah right and you know we've I've seen this with um, with people who you know depending on how quickly they kind of get slapped back to reality. You know, so some of the, some of the people I'm thinking of are Amy Cuddy, who gave okay. that that TED talk on body, you know, power poses. Oh, not aware of that one. So you know, it's like one of the like the top two or three TED talks ever. So basically, that you know, if you assume a power pose and let let the audio re- record show that I'm like you know, sort of like Superman, arms out, mm-hmm. you know, chest up, looking okay. up. End scene of platoon. <laughs> yeah. That you know that makes people more confident. Hmm. It makes them, you know, in studies and in, in behavioral studies, they are more assertive and like turning off the fan, the annoying fan, things like that. Hmm. And um, their like IgA levels and saliva change hmm. demonstrate. And this was like this was the research, and you know, all of a sudden, like, oh, great! So women can equalize their power positions in, in corporate America by assuming power poses. And that was the talk. Hmm. And then it turns out nobody's able to replicate it. And yeah. their own lab didn't really replicate it. And they compared 
not power poses versus neutral, but power poses versus the opposite, fetalizing. Okay. Right. And that's how they got, like, like the, the idea was so seductive. So hang on, just to, to clarify. So they, so in Amy Cuddy's study, the one that she was drawing from, they weren't comparing power pose with no pose. They were comparing power pose with fetalizing, right? Right, right. That's fascinating from our point of view because we know or we believe right, that um, fetalizing has net effects that are detrimental towards those kinds of behaviors. Like we could predict that it would go the other way, that you're actually creating a negative balance there. So that's about the furthest thing from uh, control that you could have created. That's That's very interesting. Yeah, and, and, you know, and she came under a ton of criticism. Mm. Uh, you know, again, this is about humans, and a lot of it was very nasty, mm. <laughs> right? You know, and sexist and derogatory. Okay. And she kind of, you know, like left the public eye for a while. I think he probably had to go recover, like mm. just spiritually. Okay. Um, and then there's also, you know, Brian Wansink. Who um, who did the work on mindless eating? He has a book, Mindless Eating. Okay. And in in my impeccable timing, I had him on the podcast. And he basically talks about like the bigger, you know, if you have a big plate, you'll eat more. Sure. Um, if you have a bigger spoon, you'll eat more. And he did these experiments with the bottomless bowl, bowl. bottomless bowl, or, you know, or stale popcorn in a movie versus stale popcorn in a lab setting. Hmm. The the week I published my podcast interview with him, he was basically like censured and thrown off the faculty at Cornell for fabricating results. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, so I don't know the truth of any of this. This is like, you know, he said, she said, they both seem like really nice people. Yeah. Uh, but I think they both had an idea that seduced them beyond, right. beyond the evidence. Yeah. And, you know, and so I think the I think there's a, there must be some sort of a discipline mm. or, or for science to say I've got to go actively search out um, what's you know dis counterfactuals or yeah, things counterfa- that might yeah mm. you know so a great example of this you know Danny Kahneman mm. uh, and almost Tversky who you know are are, some, are, are intellectual heroes with behavioral economics thinking uh, fast and slow in the book yeah, uh, if, you, the, if there was the another guy, read it. Uh, gary klein was saying no this is this is not how it works mm. and they got together and they did a studies together because mm. like hey we totally disagree on this yeah but, you know the the three of them were such pure scientists they're like what's going on yeah what why are we disagree yeah and they, you know and they discovered nuance like ah in this situation this in this mm. other situation that yeah. See, that's beautiful. And that's what we want to believe. Uh, most of science is built around that people look for ways to disprove their own theory, but human nature holds that it just isn't such. Right. And, um, and that gets into like an interesting thing of like what we want to be true versus what is true and, and what can be true. And we'd love that to happen all the time, but being realistic, people, scientists being people aren't going to do that i don't think for the most part and so the bulk of science is not being done in that way it's being done by people who have an idea and they become attached to that idea they test that idea if it doesn't work out maybe they'll drop it but if if for them they've proved something 
and they've succeeded in making some little dent in the in the pantheon of knowledge, right? Then that's theirs now, and they're going to build on that to get more funding. They're going to build on that to get more work, to hire other people, to support their lab full of postdocs, whatever it's going to be, right? Um, so if somebody comes along and challenges that, the, the response is not like, "Oh, that's fascinating. Let me do work with you, and we'll both figure out why my thing might be wrong, and I should not be funded anymore." Do you know what I mean? It's um, it's not typically the way that things go. Normally, they circle the wagons, um, and and just defend right down to the last man, right? Alamo style. Although apparently at the Alamo, most of the people walked out and surrendered and got executed anyway. So that's a myth. But, um, but you know, the idea is that the, the idea kind of doesn't survive contact with reality. The idea that science is done in this impersonal, dispassionate way really does. So that the, you telling that story is almost like it's, it's beautiful and it's lovely because we kind of know that that's not really not usually the way that it goes. Right? And I think I think there's a bigger problem, which is to be a scientist and to get funding, you have to be the star quarterback. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, you're not going to be the offensive or defensive lineman, the grunt workers, hmm. which means you're you know, like what we need in science is duplication of yeah. results. Yeah. Right? And we don't get that. So there's a there's a study. And it says something really weird and amazing. And hmm. everyone's like, oh, wow, like this is the new thing, right? Because it's it's more interesting. Yeah. Like if I sent you an article that says broccoli is good for you, you might not open the link. If I sent you an article that says, you know, Krispy Kreme donuts are good for you, you're like, what? Hmm. Right? So our, it's just our brains going like, oh, novelty. Yeah, because we we filter for surprise. Like we, you know, surprise is a, a, something that we crave. <laughs> like. Yeah. yeah. So if we, if we don't, if most of science is not attempting to replicate yeah. results, how trustworthy is any of it? Yeah. And, and that point about the power poses to, you know, people feeling more confident and things like that, uh, that speaks to a, a larger problem in in psychology, I think, which has been called, you know, the replication crisis, right? That um, that so many of these findings, especially in psychology papers from like the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, right? Um, and now people are going back through and trying to replicate them and can't. Like there's something like, I don't know what the figure is. I think something like 90% of them cannot be replicated when they designed the study the way that the people said that they did, which means that you start to believe, mm, how true is this stuff? And it's shaky at best. But that seems to me to be, in a weighted in a big big way towards psychology and um in which studies are very very difficult to constrain and design in such a way that they're not open to those problems but it's by no means completely restricted to that right it's very very easy to design a nutrition study or even a double blind control study that does nothing but prove that's what happens when you do this kind of double blind control study that right? <laughs> hasn't really proved what they think it's proving as it goes outside of it so it's a problem that there is a bit of a crisis but um, but again, I, I don't know whether the the weight of evidence argument is is sufficient for us to solve the problem because that's not really what we do, right? We we certainly can't acquire all the knowledge by ourselves, right? We certainly can't do all the research and do all the experiments and run all the PCR tests and you know interview all the people. If, if we tried to do that, um, and I think it was that there was an article in Medium a while back about how do we discern truth from reality, and it might have been in relation to the, the vaccine, anti-vaccine movement, things like that. But one of the points that it was making in there was that the, the quest to kind of be, to be a sole discerner of knowledge, right? To just be like, I don't trust the government. I don't trust scientists. I don't trust nutritionists. I don't trust health coaches or martial arts instructors, right? The only thing that's true is what I know for myself. And that's absolute fallacy. It's absolutely impossible to discern truth in, in any useful way that way. Um, because 
you're you're limited to what you can experience yourself and moreover you're marking yourself as the sole arbiter of what knowledge can be right with the limits of your knowledge and the limits of your power of powers of discernment and judgment you are deciding that the only knowledge exists is essentially the knowledge that i know and judge to be true already which means you can essentially never no learn anything new or you can only really delude yourself as to whether or not something so truth becomes personal judgment and that's it right so all of these people that say that i don't trust the government i don't trust scientists i don't trust at all if they refuse to rest to recognize any kind of expertise or authority um or kind of collective wisdom if, if they're doing that and they're trying to be on on their own then they're setting themselves up immediately for disappointment you know that they're going to be straying as far very very far from logic very, very far from reason, very, very far from actually what's what reality is. And, and you know, we can get into deep philosophical ideas of what even is reality. It's something we all agree on. Um, but it's almost the opposite of what Tyson Yoko Porta talks about, you know, in his like cultural collective knowledge and an indigenous knowledge in which knowledge really is, like reality really is what the tribe creates and what everybody agrees is true. And you can't know anything in a vacuum. And that's that's absolutely true in a practical sense, right? If we don't trust any scientists, we don't trust anybody in the government, we don't trust anybody at all, then you're just a yokel in a hut making value judgments for yourself. And you can't claim, you cannot claim that you know everything. You can't, you'd have to be omnipotent to be able to make that claim. Right? Well, and, and listen, I just ordered the book, um, The Extended Mind. Yeah, uh, by uh, Annie Murphy Paul, who mm. makes that point. Like our brains evolved for a particular purpose. Yeah, right. And the purpose is to sort of navigate outdoor space and social interactions. Yeah, and so you know, so we have biases towards that that are very evolutionarily advantageous to do what everyone around us is doing. Yeah, <laughs> right. Whether they're right or not. Yeah. Right. So I was talking with Josh Lajani, you know, yesterday about, you know, him being a progressive in a MAGA world down in yeah. South Louisiana. And like how 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 easy is it for people in that community to to all be MAGA, to yeah. all be flying, you know, the you know, the the vaccines are a hoax sure. government uh, conspiracy flag. Hmm. Uh, because it's more important for our survival hmm. to be in agreement with our tribe than to be right. Yeah. Or on the flip side, if you're, you know, if you're in a community in, you know, Oregon or or Seattle or something like that, or, or, you know, middle of New York, where everybody is, is talking about nothing but, you know, critical race theory or other stuff like that. If you're the, if you're the one person who's just like, yeah, I don't care that much about critical race theory. It's quite hard. <laughs> it's, it, it will be difficult to go against the grain of those people, like the super liberals as well. So it doesn't matter which chamber you're in. Do you know what I mean? It's, um, it's hard to, it, it, it's harder to resist. It's harder to kind of be the be the nail that sticks up and probably will get hammered down um, than it is to go with the flow. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for myself, one of the things I think about is like, maybe I don't need to find the truth. Maybe I just need to find good enough. <laughs> yeah. So this, so this is an absolute question that I wanted to get to. Right. Um, so if it's, if it's never about finding absolute truth and it's only about finding truth, that's good enough for now. And there are actually lots of philosophies of science that say 
that that's all that science is anyway, right? Scientists will talk about theories and hypotheses and laws. And by the time something becomes a law, then it's that's it. It's a fact. It's like, but real philosophers of science will tell you there's no such thing as a scientific fact. There's only a highly corroborated theory, right? That's it. And it can be extraordinarily highly corroborated. But then what does corroborated means mean? It means that lots of people that you trust because somebody said they're scientists or they got their degree at Stanford or whatever it's going to be, have agreed on that idea. So ultimately, you're not, you're still crowdsourcing your your uh, constitution of knowledge, right? Your constitution of knowledge is still dependent on expertise. It's dependent on trust. That trust leaves holes that enable people to exploit us if they want to, right? If we do trust people and they're not trustworthy or they're you know charlatans or something like that, then that's the whole. So, th- so there's the dichotomy, right? It's really, really tough. You have to weigh that up all the time. It's like the, you can't know. So how do you decide not whether something is true but is good enough for you. So let's give, give it a concrete example, because otherwise we can get into like a, a philosophy discussion here and everybody will get very bored, right? Um, let's take a recent example. So the Herman Ponzer book, the Burn, um, How Your Body, How Exercise and Calories Really Work. What's, I can't remember the exact title of the book. So. Yeah. Something like that, right? Um, burn, how the, the real story about how calories. Some some marketer got their hand on the, on the cover. Something like that. Right? Right. Close the lid off. Our view. Yeah. Yeah. So so essentially, it's right now. I mean, this is an idea that's been around for about a decade, but it's not scientific establishment, right? It's not something that everybody agrees on. I mean, nutrition is tricky anyway. But can you can you give us an overview of what his what his view is and why it's controversial? Why the book would be controversial at all with with anybody in the dieting world? Well, he says that we basically have a calorie constraint model that we that our bodies burn roughly the same amount of calories every day on yeah. average. Not mm-hmm. that if you run a marathon one day, and but on average, we're we're you know men, you know, men burn about three thousand calories a day, women a little north of two thousand, mm-hmm. and whether you when you exercise, you're not adding to that. Mm-hmm. We're just shifting a caloric burn from other things. Right. So, in the, to clarify, in the short term, we're not saying that if you run a marathon or like you know do high intensity inf- interval training for two hours today, that you will not burn more energy, that you will not use more energy. We're not saying that. We're just saying in the short term that might happen. But if you're looking at exercise as a way of burning off energy, right, that you eat via food, and therefore you can eat more food and then just exercise more and burn it off. It doesn't work in, at least in the long term. We know that it doesn't work. And the, the, the formative example, the one that stuck in my head from your interview with him, I haven't read the book yet and it's fascinating, but um, is this idea that he gets this from studying Hudzi tribesmen in, is it Tanzania or Kenya? Something like that. Northern Tanzania. Tanzania, yeah, who have a very active, they, they move as much in a day as most Americans do in like a week and a half or something like that, right? Um, it's all day hunting and gathering, building and dancing and doing stuff, right? Um, versus sedentary American, right? And they both have, after time, like as a net average over time, they have about the same energy expenditure per day. It's that like 3,000 calories or whatever, you know, energy equivalent is going to be. It's like, how can you equi- how can you account for that if one of them is moving so much more than the other one? And it's that the person that's moving, their bodies have just adjusted to that over time. That becomes the new normal. Um, and, they're t- and they're taking energy from other systems. And in the Hadzi's case, that's actually quite, beneficial because it pulls energy away from an overactive immune system, right? Or, or overactive other places. But in the sedentary Americans case, without that exercise, right? Yeah. Then they're not putting on weight because they're not exercising. They're putting on weight because they're eating a ton, right? More than their than their actual bodies actually need, not just for movement, but for everything. Um, and those 
that energy has to go somewhere and that other that energy that's not being spent by the the hubsy and it, but by them in the sense in exercise is put towards the immune system and being overreactive and and an elevated inflammatory response and the stress response as well which is very very relevant to me in my work in, in stress proofing as well so that this this kind of idea that there's kind of yeah there's ups and there's downs in the short term but if you're looking at long-term strategies for eating and exercising you should exercise, but not to lose weight because that's not what happens. There's a trade-off, right? And there's a fixed energy budget. And sooner or later, your body will just take energy from other systems, not from your fat cells. Right. And, you know, and I asked him, like, why would our bodies, like, assume we don't exercise, why are our bodies so stupid that, that they're sort of ramping up immune response when it becomes counterproductive and inflammatory? Why do we have this heightened stress response? Like, what, what would be the, why, why, you know, our bodies aren't stupid. Why are they acting so stupidly? He's like, well, if you think about it, that would be a rare occurrence in the in, in the old days to have all this extra energy. We would then, you know, you think, oh, go fix the house, go do this, go do all this stuff you can't afford to do. Like, oh, let's yeah. go scavenge, let's go, you know, let's make sure there's no threats around because it was it was the body assumes that's going to be a very short term uh, windfall. Sure. Yeah. Having a, having a surplus of food available was not the norm, right? right. <laughs> For a hundred thousand years of our existence. It's a, and probably right up until about a couple of hundred years ago, right? <laughs> Most people didn't have a surplus of food, right? Famine was pretty common right up until the 1800s, you know, like pretty much. Right. So it's only been a little while that famine, I mean, of course, some places you still get famine, but, um, but, but not the way that it used to be. It used to be a, like an annual occurrence in most places in the world. There used to be famines in New York, right up until about, you know, um, a couple of hundred years ago, I think. So it's, um, so that's a big deal. It's, it's, our bodies are still, and it's this, this, this narrative about our modern bodies and brains acting for a time in which they are now ill-adapted, you know, like the modern world has changed, modern food has changed, modern information has changed, and they're trying to do something that fit perfectly in archaic Tanzania, but doesn't work too well in you know, modern day Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. And the reason this, you know, this theory is so upsetting to people yeah, it's because it contradicts the biggest loser, right? Mm. Which is our current um, cultural model of weight loss, mm -hmm. which is near starvation and work out brutally like eight hours a day, sure, and, and get shamed for for getting tired and sure. giving up. Right. Yeah, or, or that it suggests, or, or there's any suggestion at all that exercise isn't beneficial for everything. Do you know what I mean? For the, for the exercise fanatics, for the people who are like, exercise is everything. If you're like, yeah, you should exercise. It helps with the stress response. It helps with the inflammatory response. It's not going to keep the weight off in the long term. That's that's all about nutrition. But you should still exercise. Even saying that will have people spitting out their tea, you know, <clears throat> you know spitting out their lattes or whatever it's going to be. You know, it's 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 stabbing them right in their orthodoxy, isn't it? Like getting straight in there as well. Right. So, so for you, so I want to bring that concrete example. Right? I heard that idea and I'm like, that's fascinating. And that equates to me to the idea of kind of like a, a fixed neurological budget and that things have to get pulled around. And if you get very stressed out, it will pull energy the other way, right away from digestion. And it will pull energy away from um, repair and all of it, immunity, all of those things as well. So for me, I'm like, yeah, this, this kind of makes sense. I want to learn more about it. I haven't read the book yet and I haven't fully kind of folded it into... <clears throat> my other concepts of, of what surrounds nutrition and exercise and everything else, right? There's, there's some points of conflict that I haven't quite dealt with yet. Like what happens in terms of strength training? Cause it's absolutely clear that, you know, when you eat a lot of food and it's built as muscle, not aerobic exercise, which is mostly what he was talking about, but when you gain, you know, 
muscle, then that muscle requires more nutrition. You do eat more food. It's just displaced in a different way. What happens there? Is there an adaptation to that over time? And how does that compare to aerobics? Um, and then also yeah, ideas about, yeah. that, sorry. He has an answer for that, by the way. He does. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I, I'd love to talk. So is it a short answer or is it? Very short answer. So okay. you, you burn calories based on your weight. Okay. So when you weigh more, you burn more calories. Okay. So there is an additional energy requirement just because your weight goes up anyway. Yeah. Right? yeah. Okay. Cause you're slugging more around all day long and that's stuff. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. That, and, and that makes sense. Right. And that's one way of resolving those, but there's other things in between as well, which is, and this has been my general kind of issue with the straight calories in calories out model in the past. It's not that that's not true. It's not that it's not true that if you create an energy deficit, like by eating less, then your standard, whether whether or not it's a fixed energy budget or one that fluctuates, if you eat less than that, then of course, right, you're you're um, going to create a deficit and you will probably um, lose weight that way, right? Do you know what I mean? Um, but my problem is is that that basically it's a truism, right? It's an obvious truism, but it sidesteps psychology entirely. It just says then, so then all you have to do is eat less calories, right? Which is actually the problem. <laughs> the, the, not, the problem isn't that people don't know that they have an energy budget. And if only they knew this, then everything would change. It's just like, what do you have to do in order to consistently create that deficit? And so out of that come all of the potential diet solutions that people see, whether it's keto, whether it's going vegetarian to avoid fatty foods, if they're not ethical for it, or whether it's, you know, intermittent fasting or wherever it's going to be. It's like, and it might be that all of these things only work on the energy deficit model, right? But, um, but some of them work better with human psychology than others. And that's not something he addresses. He just says, oh, they're all fads and you just have to eat less food. It's just like, who cares? We're human beings and we have to figure out. And this is assuming that his view is absolutely true, right? I'm forced to kind of move my models around to fit that based on what's true. Right now, there's not a big conflict in my head and the status that I've assigned Ponce's theory in my head is that, yeah, good enough. Yeah, I probably believe that, right? For you, how did you arrive at good enough for Ponce's theory, given that there, it probably conflicted with other things that you know about too? Like he said to you, there's not really any benefit to eating a raw food diet and you can't really thrive on it. Do you know what I mean? And there's and there's problems with veganism. He said things like that. And you're probably like, there's something in you bristling. Like there's some knowledge, there's some base in there that's, that's being stamped. How did you arrive at, yeah, good enough. I believe that now. Uh-huh. Well, so so one thing, I mean, I'll start with the the externals. He's a professor at Duke University. Okay, that's a, that's a plus in my mind. Like, okay, I, like I feel like he's gone through a bunch of hurdles. Mm -hmm. He's probably not a nut. Yeah, okay. he's probably not a faker. So expertise yeah. and trust again, trust yeah. and expertise. Then I go and I look at who said who praised his book, and I okay. look, and I look them up, mm -hmm. and I was like, who are his friends? Who are his friends on Twitter? Who is, and are they? Do they are they interested in truth? Are they publishing, you know, links to studies like, oh, look at this, this is interesting, or mm. are they hardcore, you know, are they nasty? Mm. <laughs> like honestly, like, um, you know, there's there's a group of of plant based doctors and researchers that I've been following on Twitter, mm. who are very critical of the icons of the vegan movement. Mm. You're critical of Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. Campbell, Dr. Barnard, Dr. McDougall, mm. um, saying that they're they're you know they're they're basically quacks because okay. they don't believe in science anymore. They've just got an idea and they're following. And I'm like that's really interesting because these are plant-based doctors. They're not keto, but they, they're you know and they're they're saying we are the ones who are 
maintaining science. Hmm. And, you know, their motto is like RCT or go to hell, meaning randomized hmm. clinical trial, or I don't, don't even talk to me about it. Hmm. And it was very interesting, but I had to stop following them because they were nasty. <laughs> okay. They're, but does that make them, that does that make them incorrect though? Why, why is nastiness like a, a well, but, but it's an interesting thing because you have to ask like, if they're being really nasty and defensive about their belief, what are they afraid of? That's the question that I, that I ask myself, right? Right. Like, so nastiness means that their ego is primary yeah. here. It's to me, it's just, it's a tell. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, the people that, that I have met who have been the most gracious around this. When you argue with them, they say, wow, that's really interesting. Can you send me a paper on that? I would, sure. I would love to look that up. I never heard of that. Yeah. Or, oh, I didn't really, you know, and it's disarming. So that's a rule of thumb. That's a little algorithm that you've come up with, right? If somebody's nasty and aggressive, they're probably afraid of something, hiding something or attached to their ego. That doesn't bode well for their ability to discern truth, all right? Uh, or their trustworthiness. Therefore, if Herman Ponser had come on your podcast and he'd been really aggressive with you, right? Even if he was saying all the same things with all the same people recommending him with all the same research and in your mind, all of the same logical parallels being drawn, if he'd have been on there being like, no, 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 that's not what it is at all. And that's why people who are vegans are just idiots, you know, would you have believed his theory to the same extent? Probably not. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I, it might be my problem, but I also, I also want to live a happy, like, Compassionate sure. life. So, if, so like you know, I wrote these books back in the day that were very aggressive in promoting a perspective and saying that other perspectives are wrong. Sure. And you know, I tried to make a career out of that, and I found that it just didn't fit my personality. Like, I'm not a debater. Yeah. I'm not yeah. a fighter. I, I, you know, can't we all just get along? Sure. Yeah. But um, yeah. I, I, to be clear, I, I'm not like kind of saying, oh, that's a bad. A yardstick by which to measure truth. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that's actually a valid yardstick, yardstick for measuring truth. But it, that's also about acknowledging that what you're doing is not coldly assessing the science and assessing his professorship as a Duke professor. More important in some ways than the fact that he is a Duke professor is that he is a calm, benign, and non-egotistical Duke professor. Do you see what I mean? So that's actually the quality that you've latched onto and said, okay, because of that, I'll, I'll listen to him to a greater extent than I want. So it's still about this discernment of people that you trust, right? And it might be somebody who's in an expert position. You might be like, oh, he's an expert. That's good enough for me. A lot of Americans are in my experience, distrustful of expertise or authority generally, right? In a way that we're not in Europe in a, fu in a funny way, like a lot of people aren't in Europe. So a lot of people go to the next thing down, which is, is, is it somebody, is it a very trusted friend or family member? Is it somebody who I feel is just very trustworthy? Or this other quality, this other kind of category that I kind of came up with, that, that it's a person that you feel to be a combination of unusually wise right? Through like acquired knowledge, whether that's academic or life experience living in India and millions of places or wherever it's going to be. And that you feel this fundamentally incapable of deception, that you're like, there's nothing to me that would suggest that they want to hoodwink me or something, right? If you find those two things in a person, it's very powerful, isn't it? It's, and you, For me, it is anyway. And it's uh, and I'm much more inclined to listen to them and give weight to their ideas than I am somebody else who's authoritative, but shifty and nasty. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so it's, uh, it's, it's that I'm thinking of Sam Harris, you know, I think he's a very intelligent guy. Um, 
he he has guests on the show. I listen to it all the time. I think he, has, he brings up really relevant issues that need to be discussed. But sometimes the way that he discusses them um, to me suggests that he needs to be right. And that he, do you know what I mean? And, and he can shoot people down if they don't agree with his ideas and things like that. And I'm like, mm, okay, well, I, I believe you to a point, but I might believe somebody else in your kind of oeuvre, right? Somebody else who's also like a thinker, a dark web guy or something, but who's not so vehement about it. Do you know what I mean? Who Who, who is going like, that's interesting. I want to read the study on that. You know, I'm more inclined to believe those than I am him, even though he does represent a source of, of, of knowledge for me, right? But it's not the source, but it's the same yardstick I'm using, right? I'm like, how much ego is invested? And is that a warning sign as to what else is coming on? What other baggage is coming with this knowledge? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, something else I just realized is, and I haven't read Byrne yet, but he is a historian of his field. Mm. And I think that's very important for me, that yeah. someone is a historian of their field, that they're not just deeply knowledgeable about this moment, about yeah. this body of knowledge. So he's talking about something that I frankly don't understand at all, which is like double water measuring of caloric expenditure. Mm -hmm. There's a thing with a, uh, an isotope and you measure the P and you like, you know, maybe in 11th grade, I could have done it as like a math problem. <laughs> but like now I'm like, I, you know what? Okay. So he says like, this is the gold standard for measurement and here's why. And I'm like, okay. But he goes through the history of how we measure calories mm -hmm. and he knows his field and he understands, okay, here were the previous standards and here's how the new ones compare to those. And here's why there's why we believe there's greater validity yeah. um, and reliability to these measures. So is there an aspect of transparency there as well? The more transparent somebody is, the more they show their work, right? <laughs> the yeah. more you're inclined to believe them as well. But if they're hiding something and being like, trust me, it's true. Don't, don't ask. Then it's, yeah. there's a different thing. Well, even, I mean, I don't know scientists who, who are like, I'm not going to show my work, hmm. uh, but whether, um, I mean, you know, it's an attempt to understand it. Yeah. Right. So one of the things that I found really appealing about Herman Ponser is how much he values people like you who are explainers. Mm. Right. So right before he was on my podcast, he was on Alan Alda's podcast. Mm. Um, and he's like, I love Alan Alda. Of course, you know, I fanboyed him from MASH, but yeah. he's such a good psychom explainer. Mm. Mm. And so like Herman Ponser, like, he does his best to explain what double water is like, mm. like, I want you to understand why I use this method and why I think it's so great hmm. and why we got this wrong in the past, right? Okay. He's, he's, he's saying, I have a new theory. It, hmm. it blows the lid off of old theories. And hmm. it's not because I'm brilliant. Hmm. It's because we have better tools and we use them in a different way. And I had, I was so lucky to have access to this primate lab and to these people and yeah. Okay, so so he so he offers a, a lot of weight coming with his argument, and that, that's that comes to the old idea that old idea that if you present an unusual viewpoint, right, one that's contradictory, then it requires unusual evidence, you know, which yeah. is not always fair. Like sometimes you're like, oh man, we can't get this, we can't do the experiment design yet, or for various reasons we can't do this yet, you know. And we could hark back to Galileo and all kinds of stuff and astronomy for that, but that holds true all the time. So, but but it, it's not bad, right? If somebody tells you that they can levitate. 
right? If somebody tells you that they can lose weight, they can lose 10 pounds in a week, then I'd be like, yeah, that's probably true. I see boxers do it all the time, you know, <laughs> with weight cutting and stuff like that. But if somebody tells you they can levitate, I'm not going to believe you unless you present me with some pretty compelling evidence, like nothing short of me seeing you fly. And even then I'll be looking for wires and yeah. squatting underneath you and stuff like that. You know? um, you're going to have to give me some pretty compelling evidence for that unusual claim, right? And so I think that's a fair thing to hold in your head, right? So let's go to another couple of quick concrete examples just to kind of um, round this off. And one is um, Porges versus Huberman, right? So we had a little exchange uh, in which you were saying that Andrew Huberman on his podcast, The Huberman Lab, which I think is great too. He has some really, really good stuff on there, um, was somewhat disparaging the polyvagal theory movement. Um, not saying that the theory itself was bullshit, but just that it's been extended. They're over their skis, that lots of people um, are making claims as to its diagnostic capacity or its therapeutic capacity that aren't really demonstrated by what he said. And he, and he suggested the, the, the holes that he's knocking in it. And actually, Paul just acknowledges this in the updated versions of his book as well, is that anatomists... Um, so, you know, to, if you don't know what polyvagal theory is, we've had like another podcast on it and things, and Stephen Porges was on an earlier episode. But essentially, it's saying that it's not just fight or flight versus rest and digest, and that you have... Um, two branches to your autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, which is what's always taught in textbooks. And that's the way it goes. It's medical orthodoxy. Um, but there are actually kind of two functional branches. And this is the key word, I think, functional branches to the parasympathetic um, nerve and its, and its function, the ventral and the dorsal, meaning in front and behind. And he says that the ones kind of associated, uh, one set are associated with kind of social engagement and like positive calming yourself down, uh, associated with eye movement, facial expressions, lots of other things. And the other one is associated with like a, a deep kind of shutdown, right? And there's an interplay which leads to a spectrum of stress responses, right? Not just fight or flight or rest and digest, but a spectrum of things, including kind of engagement and stimulation, social engagement, somewhere between fight or flight and shutdown, you know, lots and lots of little things, which adds a lot of diagnostic capacity and seem to explain a lot more of the clinical um, obvious data, behavioral data that he was seeing. And then in the book, you know, and in his writings, he kind of extrapolates to animal evolution and physiology and new neonatal development, all kinds of things, right? So there seems to be a lot that goes into it. And it's been a powerful idea that lots of therapists have used and, and I've used it. And it seems to segue very well with lots of systema thinking, with lots of, with other viewpoints on stress and um and the body even from like chinese medicine and ayurvedic medicine things like that it seems to be a very powerful unifying idea um but hubman's problem with it is one when anatomists look for the two branches of the nerve it doesn't quite work out that way like it doesn't physically look that way in the body right um therefore it's not quite true the basis the, the what he's basing things on that there's physically a branch like that isn't quite true it's more like a loop or it doesn't quite go the way that we say it is um and two even if it is true to some extent and it's and it's useful in some areas saying that if somebody has hypermobile joints it's probably because they have a you know a poor vagal tone or something like that or, or poor control over their um similar autonomic response to you know, dysautonomia or something like that is going too far that they might just have hypermobility because they have shitty joints or bad nutrition or they've injured themselves or something like that right so so to your point so how do you then decide whether or not huberman has said blast that out of the water and maybe I shouldn't believe Porges anymore. And that's no longer something that's important to me or is Porges still good enough, but Huberman's just pointed out the edges of what defines good enough. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, when I think about it, is something true? So one, one of them is, is there a mechanism, mm-hmm. right? Like, do we know, like, does it make sense? Like, oh, we have this thing in our body that mm-hmm. does this. We know that, um, you know, sucrose is converted to uh, ATP. So yeah. that makes sense, whatever. Yeah. Right. So like, if there's no mechanism, then we have to then like, well, I don't see how that could be true or why it would be right. So but that's a big statement because we we find things all the time and we make, you know, we didn't know what the mechanism was for penicillin, for example, but we just found that there was something that funguses make that kill bacteria. And we used it successfully to cure half the world of in- infectious diseases. And we didn't have a mechanism for years and we didn't have a mechanism of how um, mental activity affects the body via stress for a long time. We just empirically saw that it was true, but there was no direct mechanism or there were woolly mechanisms, wrong mechanisms. Darwin famously thought that genes blended together and and came out with offspring instead of like in the digital way that they are inherited and there's dominance and recession and crossovers and differential gene activation. Like he had no idea how genes worked. He just knew there was something heritable, but the, the wide sweep of his theory is still true. It's just false in some areas, right? So you can actually, you can have something very useful and true to an extent without knowing the exact mechanism, right? Right. It was just, that's one area. So yeah. that's, that's one of the things I look for. Is okay. Like, is there a known mechanism? If not, then, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Okay. A second is sort of an evolutionary uh, filter. Like okay. if that were true, would you and I be alive to have this conversation today? That's an interesting one. That's a good one. Yeah. Right. So I think about that in terms of, you know, people's propensity to put on fat. Like yeah. if if we didn't, or if if we needed, you know, if 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 we needed animal protein every day mm. and it was a requirement, would you and I be alive to have this conversation based on human history? Like mm. probably not. Like if we couldn't go a day without, you know, oxygen, yes. Mm-hmm. right protein no right so so that just as a you know another filter but for me the, the, the most important filter is like the what i learned from about science is that the the test of a theory is its predictive ability mm-hmm. right so does this you know and the, you know so for Ponser's theory about burn you know who i've talked to who are like oh my god that makes so much sense mm. is former fat people Hmm. Right. So that's had the conversation with Josh Lajani, who lost 230 pounds. I was like, absolutely. That's, you know, that's exactly my experience. And I didn't understand it. Yeah. We're talking to a bunch of other people like, yeah, I was exercising. I, I changed my diet. I lost all this weight. I exercised more and I couldn't get it off. I, right. Like, so, oh, does this theory, you know, predict what I, you know, does it help me get what I want? Does it help our society achieve what it wants? Yeah. Whether it's absolutely true or not. So for mm. me, the good enough is, you know, can, you know, can I predict an eclipse with it? Does, does mm. it work? Can I predict, um, you know, the effects of an economic policy mm. on the economic theory? Mm. So like, like, I think that's the best we can do. And, you know, so Newton was wrong, right? Mm. About, Newtonian physics, but it still works well for basketball. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, and then just to tie this off with a vague reference to Sistema, since we've been talking for like an hour with mostly just about vague philosophy and then health and nutrition and things. It's like uh, the question that popped into my head with this one is that the ongoing argument all the time about slow and soft work in Sistema and whether that has validity in real combative fighting arts, right? Like why do we spend so much time working soft? Um, Why do we, at all ever 
be compliant as, as training partners? Why aren't we just giving it full tilt all the time so that the other person can see what works with full tilt, full, um, full tilt all the time? Um, so, and there's kind of two camps in that, right? You've got the, it's like Sistema versus wrestling versus MMA. And like the wrestling MMA crowd uh, are kind of like, well, look who's in the cage. Look who's wrestling and doing really well uh, and fighting well in the MMA cage. That proves who can do it and who can't, right? <laughs> and and that's what works. Um, but interestingly, there's other, and the Sistema camp or the traditional martial arts camp might say, yeah, but that's not what it's designed for. And look what happens when, you know, MMA fighters get into knife fights or what, when they get set upon by two or three people, they move in very sloppy ways that don't help them and they're less likely to survive. So we're training for something different than a linear back and forward attack and, and also, you know, capacities for escape and all kinds of stuff like that. But interesting, there's also some wriggle room in the middle in which people are training things like Brazilian jiu-jitsu or even boxing right? We'll do light sparring or light rolling, right? They'll agree not to go full force and full speed so that they can feel things out, learn new techniques, practice new combinations, um, study distance and timing, you know, all of these things. And nobody denigrates Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners or boxers when they do that. They're not like, what the hell is Mike Tyson going full tilt on his trainer there, his elderly trainer? Why isn't he smashing me in the face <laughs> doing all these things, right? It's um, So it seems as a means to an end, as long as the end result is powerful. I think that's what it is. And so for me, that argument about soft work and things, it's like, well, Okay. Can you can okay. you just define soft and slow work? Because I'm going to put this on my podcast, and people may, will not understand. Gotcha. Okay. So it, it's the so if you think of like um maybe a, a boxer in a full boxing match or, or a wrestler in a wrestling match, like obviously both people are typically trying about as hard as they can, right? They're, they're going about as fast as they can. They're using all the power that they can. They're delivering as much damage or as much power as they can in a short time in order to try and win a contest, right? Um, and that's necessary to an extent, right? If you're trying to win a contest and that's the motivation. Um, but if you think of uh, a boxer just softly just kind of shadow boxing, not throwing everything with massive power, but just kind of jabbing the hand out there, slipping, weaving, moving in kind of smaller ways, or even just practicing the mechanics of a punch, just sending it out slowly, bringing it back so that they can feel what's going on. Or you can imagine a wrestler slowly going through the motions of a new and complex throw or something like that, right? Um, those things exist in those arts, and they're looked at as training tools to get you up to the place that they will help you to compete um, with the intermediary step of like, let's spar a bit faster, let's spar a little bit harder. Harder, and then, but nobody spars full tilt ahead of a, of a match because you'll injure yourself, and then <laughs> you know, or get knocked out, and then you won't be up, up for the, for the match itself, right? So there are, there are always gradations of this. In Sistema, we do more of this than is typical. I would say we spend more of our time in this slow kind of um, shadow boxing, matching, timing, blending type space, um, with a view to developing more kind of neurological skill versus outward power and external power and things like that. Right. So, so that's, that's what it is. So you, you can think of it somewhere between kind of martial arts drill practice. Like if he does this and you do this and something like contact improv, you know, <laughs> it's like the, there's a dance like element to it, right? There's a, there's an ability to flow around each other and feel what's going on and feel sensitivity to pressure, which is hard to do at speed, not impossible, um, but it's hard to do at speed, right? So you have to learn it this way. That's the idea. Does that kind of sum yeah. it up? Or? Yeah. And so the idea is that the, MM, the mixed martial arts people are, uh, are looking down at Sistema because they've seen a couple of YouTube videos of Vladimir yeah. and they say, well, he, that's not real. 
<laughs> yeah, or, or they're just like, well, where's the result? Where's my people doing it? Even without training with people or something like that. And again, the, the, where people fall down on this, or where people, which side of the fence they fall on as to whether or not it's useful or not, and whether they stay with the training or not, seems to come down to these same kind of yardsticks, right? They're like, okay, first, let's see if somebody I trust has done this, right? So I, I saw a, somebody uh, who's a grand master of like a Arnis fighting, like stick fighting in the Philippines. And he's a Salat practitioner. He's a brilliant martial artist in his own field, highly respected, has never done Sistema, but watched a video of one of our high-level guys, Martin Wheeler, moving softly around people and then working into things. And it's just saying, this is superb. This reflects so many things that we train. Um, most people can't understand what they're looking at here. And as a result, a lot of other people were like, yeah, I should look into this guy. You know, So the authority of this guy, that you know, somebody or Danny Nasanto, like or Higgin Machado, or another recognized features, other recognized um, figures in martial arts, um, professing saying you really should train with Vladimir or you really should train with Martin. He, he has a transcendent ability that you need to know about, right? Um, that lends weight because people put trust in them. So again, it's an authority figure that people know that they can trust. Um, and then it's kind of crowdsourced, right? And so you have this crowd of martial artists um, on something like bullshido.net who will all agree whether or not they agree whether or not something is real, you know? And on the basis of that, some people will read those and then be like, oh, I guess I'm not going to do Taekwondo then, or I'm not going to do Sistema, or maybe Krav Maga is the one for me, right? It's it's just kind of, it's the con constitution of knowledge by public opinion, right? And, and again, like everything else, this is extrapolated and pushed out by social media and people arguing with each other and that kind of thing. But it seems to me, it seems like the same thing. And so how do I agree on whether or not the truth of the of the validity and the efficacy of soft work and the way of training that we do in Sistema is good enough for me, right? Do I know that it's 100% true and that it's 100% the best way of training and all the other ways of training are, are not true? No, I don't. And I don't claim to. I, all I know is, is that I've seen and felt people who I know and trust who have had to use um, their skills in real live environments, in very, very dangerous law enforcement or military environments or security environments. Um, they're extraordinarily stable under pressure. They're extraordinarily calm people. And something about this methodology builds those, right? Versus other people that I talk to who are very, very skilled fighters, but are very nervous, anxious people who always seem to get into fights and who always seem to be limping, right? They're always injured at all times. They just seem to find ways to damage themselves before they even get in the fights with other people, right? So it's so I, I look at that and the authority thing. And then in, in the crowdsourcing element, I'm like, well, there are enough people that I trust to warrant my adherence to this as a view. And, and it works within this set of conditions and situations. So, so I see soft work as a, as a necessary training tool and a very extremely valuable training tool towards a certain goal. But I try not to be fanatical about it. I don't say that that's the only way of training. And I don't believe it is. I think if all that you do is the soft work, then you never find out how you can apply that as speed or how you can apply that with tension as well. So again, I'm applying these criteria. There's a little bit of authority, trust. There's a little bit of, um, crowdsourcing of knowledge, right? And, and there's a little bit of like, is there a mechanism for this? And yeah, there is. You can look at the neurological literature about how we learn things and we learn better slow and we learn better in flow than we do when we're just trying as hard as we can and we're sympathetically activated, right? So there's mechanisms, as you pointed out there, right? Um, is there extraordinary proof for it working? Like in the form of the people that can do it, there is for me, right? So it's um, so all of those things I arrive at like are good enough 
in terms of soft work. But the problem is, is that you can't transmit that immediately to somebody else. They have to go through their own process of discernment. And I think that's probably necessary, right? Everybody, you shouldn't accept things at complete face value, whether it's a, a nutritional guideline or somebody telling you how to exercise, how to build strength or how to you know, run a marathon, um, or whether it's somebody telling you how to train martial arts. Like you should, you should, to an extent, kind of weigh things up for yourself, not be the final arbiter yourself. You should rely on other people and judgment and expertise as well. Um, but there should be a little tension there. I, I think it's healthy to have a little bit of dynamic tension in that. Yeah. I mean, who, who wants to be um, you know, at the mercy of a guru who might change their mind? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So the, I follow a, a meditation teacher, Adyashanti, who says, wouldn't it be terrible if someone could give you the truth? Because then they could take it away from you. Hmm. Hmm. That's, um, yeah, that's very, uh, yeah, that's, that's quite brilliant, actually. Yeah. Thinking about that. Yeah. That, and that speaks to that, the problem of our reliance on trust as a means for constituting knowledge. Again, it can be exploited, but that doesn't mean that we can't use trust as a, or shouldn't use trust as a means for building knowledge. Right. So, all right. Takeaways from all of this, right. Um, how can we protect ourselves from false knowledge? There's some fairly basic things that go on there, right? So unusual claims require unusual evidence. That's good. Okay, you say you can fly? Show me. You say you're telekinetic and have crazy powers? I'm going to need to see a little bit of flying stuff before I'm going to believe that. And if not, I'm going to sit with my belief that most people can't fly or have telekinetic powers. Um, another one is, does it have the hallmarks of fanaticism? Do you know what I mean? Are, is there a social group that's deeply committed to it in a way that seems like beyond the effectiveness of what it is right um does it have kind of it's, it's belief in supernatural forces kind of inherent in it right does it put aside mechanisms and say trust me it just flows that way it's energy or it's whatever it is and that kind of stuff right that doesn't necessarily mean again that it's not true or it's not useful it just might be a hallmark of something that has its own self-generating algorithm right it's its own little knowledge system that keeps ballooning out of control as well um and another one is try and see i think an interesting one is trying to see the whatever small truth is within the other person's viewpoint to your point about the scientist if somebody challenges you and says my my research not only didn't duplicate your results it shows the opposite trying to see the truth what's possible then how can we both be true right so in the case of kahneman and Tversky, them going sort of saying, well, they must have got the results somehow. So what truth is shared by both of our things? Not it's me versus them, but like, ah, our truth might not be as big as I thought it was. There's probably isn't either. Maybe we can find a nested nested uh, combination that actually includes both of those. And so for me, it's the same with soft work in martial arts versus training like um, harder um, and with higher pressures and, and skills. It's the same with diet, right? I'll accept Ponce's fixed energy budget, budget hypothesis, but I'll also hang on to the idea that psychology, um, the, your microbiome and, and that your metabolism in terms of metabolic health and how you process sugars and how fast are also important. Now, do I know which of those effects is dominant? The, 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 the effect of like the caloric fixed budget is so big that the others are almost negligible. I don't know. I'm not sure yet that that requires more work in the work, in the words of most scientists at the end of every single paper ever, right? This yeah. remains to be seen. Um, but I'm happy, like, I'm happy juxtaposing those ideas and holding multiple truths in my head until such a time as I can resolve them. I don't need to know one way or the other immediately. Is, is there something that's different in the way that you discern things or the, your kind of third route? No, I think that's a, that's a great uh, summary of, you know, uh, 
what I want to think about. Like, you know, I'm human and I'm fallible and I get things wrong all the time and I get overexcited by great ideas because they're a good story and yeah. they're, you know, but I think when I, when I, I mean, one of the, one of the things I do is I run things by you a lot. Mm. I, I can feel myself becoming a cheerleader for something. And I'm like, I need a little Glenn here. To, <laughs> to, I need a damper. I need somebody just to <laughs> just peel my fire today. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'm touched that, that I hold that place, that role in your, in your life. <laughs> well, one of the things I think about, this was, this was from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which I think was written in the early 70s. I love that book. It's my favorite, one of my faves. When he talks about, like, at a certain point, we thought science was going to give us all the answers. Like, there were people writing in the 60s and 70s, like, we basically know everything. Mm-hmm. And we're worried, like, what is science going to do once we know everything? Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, science is like a circle. And, like, what, our knowledge is the interior of that circle, and our ignorance is the perimeter, mm-hmm. the, you know, the diameter. Mm-hmm. And the bigger our knowledge gets, the more we don't know. Sure. Right? Yeah. So. Right. The area as the area increases, the uh, the unknowns increase. And yeah. that's never going to end. Yeah. And, well put. Yeah. And so like how exciting. Yeah. You know, how exciting to you know, like there's a there's a researcher now, Kevin Hall at the National Institutes of Health, who's been doing studies that we thought were impossible, like mm. bring people into the lab and feeding them and monitoring them for like three weeks at a time. And testing, like, you know, Gary Taub's hypothesis of that carbs make you fat and fat doesn't make you fat and coming up with actual numbers mm. and that, you know, like, wow, like, it's so exciting mm. to be part of science. And I think, I think the, for me, the, the wonder and just the, the privilege of, of we have this society in which we don't have to spend all our time hunting and gathering, we can go look for this knowledge in this particular way, yeah. like if, when you lose that, mm. then I don't trust you. <laughs> and when you mm. have that, I trust you. Just to keep everything in context, right? In, in Vladimir's words or Michael's words, it, and my Systema instructors, they would just say, don't be a fanatic about anything, including Systema, you know, like, and and what is a fanatic? You know, when you, when you look at the definition of it, it's like, it's somebody that has an unreasonable zeal about something. Right, it's there, and it might be a religion. It might be a it might be a political viewpoint, but it doesn't have to be. You can be a CrossFit fanatic. You can be a vegan fanatic. You can be a keto fanatic, right? You can be a science fanatic as well, right? So, it's important to keep things in the wider context of just like what's the relationship between me and this knowledge, between me and the person who's giving me this knowledge, right? And and can we relate that all to the place that we're in like in the words of tyson you know it's like i think it's really important to keep that because that stops us going down the rabbit hole of either believing something to be true because one guy who claims to represent science is true or believing that something is true because one guy who claims to represent you know an alternative viewpoint is true whatever it's going to be it's it's trying to keep that big picture and that joy like you said of of being okay with the fact that you don't know like i i honestly think in terms of success in in health right in 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 fixing your kind of nutritional 
your your eating plans as opposed to your diet or your lifestyle um, that you have as opposed to like short-term ways of losing weight and things is about your adherence to a set of principles or ideas that you can hold consistently and be like, good enough for me. And it works and I feel healthy on it. Um, And in a wider context of things, this is not damaging the planet or people or whatever it's going to be within my own ethic system, however I construct that. And that works. And there's a solidity to that, even if you don't know that it's 100% the best way of eating ever. It might turn out that the best way of eating ever is that we all eat amino acids um, that are produced by a machine, you know, in exact quantities to the things. And that might be true. I don't want it to be true. Do you know what I mean? But that might be the ultimate answer. I still might not eat that way in the end. Do you know what I mean? There might be trade-offs and there might be other ways of going. And the same thing with martial arts practice. I think for the, from my point of view and for people who train Sistema, in my experience, the people who do the best are the ones who are okay with not knowing. They're like, oh, wow, I got a bit better and I learned a lot more and I can do more things. But it just seems like I've opened up a whole bunch of other ways in which I realize that I fail or I'm trying too hard or I'm too tense. Uh, And that's okay. If you can't get okay with that, you're not going to progress. You're just going to fall off. If you're looking for the black and white answer, if you're looking for the, the viewpoint of the fanatic, if you're looking for somebody to tell you exactly how it is, and how it always will be, then you've already lost something, I think, in that, regardless of the field that you're working in. Yeah, it reminds me of a quote uh, in Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who said the scientific revolution of the 16th century, roughly, was not a revolution of knowledge, it was a revolution of ignorance. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, we don't know, and that fueled all Mm. the discovery. Beautiful. On that note, we will definitely wrap that one up. That's beautiful. Thanks so much, Howie. This is great. Thanks for, oh, yeah. for taking the time. And hope... Thank you. It's been fun. Hope to see you in person again soon. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about classes, workshops, and seminars at NC Sistema, please visit us online at www.ncsistema.com.